Matthew 5, chapter 17 through 19, that's the text this morning. Let me kind of give you a picture just really briefly of where we've been here over the last handful of weeks. Jesus began the Beatitudes, that's verses 3 through 12, chapter 5, Jesus' opening words in the Sermon on the Mount, by describing the character that we as believers are to exhibit. So the Beatitudes are, they're They are a a delineation, if you will. They they are a list of the character qualities or character traits that we are to be putting on as believers. And we see that Jesus modeled all of those uh, beatitudes for us in absolute perfection. But that is where Jesus describes the character of the believers. And then Jesus moved on in verses 13 through 16 to talk about the Christian's influence or the Christian's function in the world. As we put on the Beatitudes, we are to be salty in the world in which we live. What we are to do is to be light. We talked last week about not reversing those two things. We need to be salty and then be light. Not try to be light before we're salty. That leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. We talked about the character of the Christian. We talked about the influence or the function of the Christian. And here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17, really through the end of the chapter, but I would probably even go further and say really through the end of the Sermon on the Mount, through chapter 7. So beginning this morning through the end of chapter 7, what Jesus speaks about is the righteousness that should be evident in the life of every single believer without exception. Now, Let me preface this and say we're all a work in progress, right? Not a one of us, not a one of us is complete yet. We look forward to the day when we will be complete in him. But we're all a work in progress here. That's what Paul said in Philippians 1, 6, right? Being confident in this, he who began a good work and you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus when we stand before him face to face in all of his righteousness, yet we are without the encumbrance for all eternity sin. But until that day, Jesus instructs us here as believers about the righteousness that should be evident in the life of every believer. I mean, if you just look on uh, here, just kind of look ahead in chapter 5 for a moment. Jesus is going to speak here uh, about anger. He's going to speak about lust and adultery. He's going to speak about divorce and taking oaths and retaliation and how we're to love our enemies. And what Jesus is going to do in all of those places is he's going to give us the antithesis of what the scribes and the Pharisees, those religious doctors of the law, so to speak, the, the elite religious class of his day, understood by what he had said in Scripture, and then what Jesus really means. What Jesus is asking us for is not just merely external worship, but rather he is calling us to heart worship. Jesus is going to be penetrating down. He's going to be drilling down into our hearts in the chapters to come, dealing with the righteousness that should be evident in the life of every believer without exception. What we'll see from here on through the end of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' call to his followers. That call is one of radical righteousness. We've got lots of ground to cover this morning, so let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability as we read our text together. Matthew, recording Jesus' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the following words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fill them up. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Before I say anything about the text this morning, I think it'll be helpful for you to see the verses that are before us. That's verses 17 through 20 as broken into two distinct but inseparably connected sections. Here's what I mean by that. Verses 17 and 18, that's point number one and point number two on your outline if you're going to be a note taker this morning, would encourage you to do so. Verses 17 and 18 have to do with Jesus' relationship to the law. Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, those were the scriptures of Jesus' day. Verses 19 and 20, on the other hand, that's point three and four on your outline, have to do with the Christian's relationship to the law. We'll look at Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament scriptures, and then we'll look at the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament scriptures. Point number one on your outline, if you're taking notes this morning, is this. Jesus came, this is right on the surface of the text, to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. Look back at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. I was reading Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones this week, which I would encourage you again, if you haven't gotten a copy of Mr. Jones's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, you would be glad that you did. This is what Dr. Jones says. He says, the promise to fulfill the law and the prophets was one of the most stupendous claims that Jesus ever made. And Jesus made some great claims throughout his life and ministry. But the claim that Jesus made to fulfill the law and the prophets was a magnanimous Claim a stupendous claim by our Lord Jesus. And I would agree with Jones's words there. You see, this verse, verse 17, and those that follow shed light on Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament law. And subsequently, as we've said, how we as believers should understand our relationship to the Old Testament law. And I would even go further as to say we have got to understand what Jesus says and what he means in verse 17 if we're to make any sense out of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We could probably even say the rest of the New Testament. We have to understand what Jesus means when he says, I have not come to abolish, I haven't come to, to loosen, that's what the word is there, and a luo, to, to loosen or to relax the commandments, I have come to be their ultimate fulfillment. We have to understand what Jesus means there if we're to make sense of really the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but I would go further and say the rest of the New Testament. Now, up to this point, Jesus has not made any reference. He hasn't made any mention of the law. This is, this is the first time that Jesus makes explicit reference, at least in Matthew's gospel, to the law. Why do you suppose that Jesus made this statement? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but rather that I have come to fulfill it. Why do you think Jesus would have made such a statement? Well, I think Jesus made this statement because it's very probable 
that after his presentation of the Beatitudes and after the two metaphors of the Christian, that being salt and light, that some of Jesus' listeners, some of those who were gathered around him as he's preaching here, would have thought in some way that he was advocating an overthrow of the Old Testament law. I mean, here is a man who comes with what sounds to the ear to be a new teaching. Who is this man? As a matter of fact, the the Sermon on the Mount ends, it concludes in chapter 7 with those onlookers looking at Jesus saying, this man teaches with authority that we haven't seen before. Who is he? Is he coming teaching something new? Is he going to overthrow everything that we have been teaching and abide by? Who is this man? And so Jesus very plainly and on the onset communicates, do not think by what you've heard me say or what you will hear me say that I am in any way coming to abolish the law. Yet I am coming to be the fulfillment of the law. You see, most traditionalistic Jews consider the rabbinic instructions to be proper interpretations of the law. In other words, those scribes and Pharisees, those doctors of the law, those religious elites, they were seen as being the clear and the accurate and the true interpreters of the law. But here comes Jesus claiming to have authority from his Father who is in heaven, and there seems to be a bit of discrepancy in some of the things that Jesus says and some of the things that those teachers or doctors or religious leaders of the day were saying. And so people concluded that because Jesus did not follow their traditions, that he was obviously in some way doing away with the law or relegating it to some area of minor importance. Jesus swept away traditions like washings and special tithes and extreme Sabbath observances and other things. And so Jesus thought that he might be overthrowing God's law. But from the onset, Jesus wanted to remove this misconception from his hearers' minds. And so Jesus responds to their misunderstanding, which it's possible that these people thinking this didn't even utter a word. Remember, oftentimes throughout the gospel, Jesus uh, said things like this. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, replied. And so it's possible that someone raised the question here, but it's very possible that no one raised the question audibly, but yet it was a question on their hearts and minds. And so Jesus answers it for them. He answers it for them. He responds to their misunderstanding with this unforgettable disclaimer, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't. I've come rather to fulfill them. I mean, here was a man who wasn't a Pharisee, Jesus. Neither was he schooled in the customary channels of Jewish religious teaching. He was obviously teaching, but he wasn't schooled in their ways of thought. Jesus denied the authoritativeness of some of the religious leaders. Boy, that made them angry, right? You ever thought about this? Jesus wasn't crucified for things that he did so much as who he claimed to be. He claimed authoritativeness. That's what ruffled the scribes and Pharisees' feathers. It's not so much that he was healing or doing this or that. It was that he claimed absolute authority. And in doing so, that meant that his authority rose above that of the scribes and Pharisees. Obviously, uh, or eventually, he gave his life for that very reason. Jesus was obviously a teacher. He wasn't schooled by their training, by their school of thought, but yet he claimed to have authority 
He deliberately and unashamedly criticized the scribes and the Pharisees for their lack of understanding and their misguided doctrinal views. He spent, he spent time with the low-class tax collectors and sinners. That's a place you would never find the scribes and Pharisees, by the way. They were the outcast. Here you find Jesus sitting with them, conversing with them. Jesus didn't observe and obey all their religious rules and regulations. And so you can imagine that people began to ask, if not audibly, at least in their hearts and minds, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? Does he not believe our scriptures? Does he intend to do away with them? Why is he teaching in a way that seems to be denouncing the law and the prophets? We're the people of God, the scribes and Pharisees, the elites would have said. But Jesus, he seems to be teaching a new way to God. Remember, it's interesting that Jesus begins teaching about the kingdom of God and the Beatitudes. And the way that Jesus says a person inherits the kingdom of God is directly in opposition to the way the scribes and the Pharisees would have taught other individuals that they inherited the kingdom of God. So from the onset here, you've got a contradiction between what Jesus is teaching and what those religious teachers of the law in Jesus' day were teaching. They thought he's turned his back on our heritage. He has has a completely different belief system than we have. Is he going to come in and steamroll our scriptures? Far from abolishing the law, Jesus says, I came to fulfill it. Jesus was correcting the perversions that the scribes and the Pharisees had made to the law. That's what Jesus was taking those individuals to task over, is that they had added to and subtracted from the law. Friends, I think we need to be careful of that temptation at times. I mentioned last week that that we as believers are called to remain on the line of Scripture. When, When we teach, when we even teach our children, when we teach from a pulpit, when we teach a Sunday school class, when we're living our lives out in the community, we are to say the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We're not to rise above Scripture and add to it. We're not to descend below the line of Scripture and remove from it those things that are hard or challenging or don't fit our fancy. We're to say, thus says the Lord, and to hold God's truth, all of God's truth, so help us God. Think about this, if Jesus came to set aside the law, if he came to do away with the law, what does that say about God's righteous standards? If Jesus came to wipe it all off the dry erase board, then what does that say about God's righteous standards to begin with that were communicated to his people? Were they irrelevant then? Are they somehow irrelevant now? Are they not binding now? If so, why were they binding then? If Jesus came to abolish or to wipe away the Old Testament law, really the Old Testament scriptures in whole, then what does that say about God's righteous standards? It would lower God's righteous standards, I would submit to you. Furthermore, what kind of predicament would we be in today apart from Jesus' perfect keeping of the law? That's why it's so important that we understand what Jesus meant when he said, don't think I've come to do away with it. Don't think I've come to relax it. Don't think I've come to loose it. Don't think I've come to wipe it away. Don't think I've come to alter it. I've come to be their perfect fulfillment. The scripture's perfect fulfillment. The prophet's perfect fulfillment. I mean, think about all the messianic predictions about Jesus that he was the perfect fulfillment of. 
All the law and the prophets ultimately pointed to Jesus. All the Old Testament, and I'll show you some ways here in just a minute, but ultimately pointed to Jesus. Every single messianic prediction about Jesus in the Old Testament was literally fulfilled in his coming, in his death, and in his resurrection. Every single messianic prophecy, without exception, was literally fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of them. We think about his birthplace, think about his crucifixion, think about him being beaten, but yet a bone in his body not being broken. We could go on and on and on, every single one of them literally fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the law by keeping all of its commandments. I mean, think about, you've, you've got the Ten Commandments in Exodus, but, but there are some 2,000 other stipulations that, that were given to Moses for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And Jesus perfectly kept every single one of the law's demands. Jesus is our perfect law keeper. Remember Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 that he was born under the law. Why? That he might keep it for us and pay its penalty on our behalf. I mean, even at his baptism, Jesus said this. He told John, it's fitting for us. It's fitting for me to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus fulfilled the law by perfectly keeping all of its commands, but then he perfectly fulfilled the law by by keeping the demands that it had against lawbreakers. That's you and me, friends. Jesus satisfied the law's demands against those who would transgress it or violate it. It's okay to insert an amen there. You see, the cross is the greatest testimony that God never abolished the law. The cross is the greatest testimony that God never abolished the law. Today, Jesus fulfills the law in believers by means of his Holy Spirit. Turn over, keep your finger there in Matthew 5 for just a moment. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Let me show it to you. Romans chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. Here's the point I want to settle in your mind here. The point is Jesus fulfilled the law in believers. That's you and me by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Look what Paul pins here in Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 2. He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay? Referring to the Old Testament law there as being the law of sin and death. What did the law do? The law exposed sin. The law shined light on sin. The law helped us understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. But the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Paul goes on and he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By the way, that's not a statement of the inadequacy of the law there. It's a statement of the inadequacy of our ability to keep it. Paul goes on and he says, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Okay, friends, did we meet the exacting requirements of the law? Everyone go like this. Uh Uh-uh. No. No, not a chance. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what did God do? He sent his son to meet the requirements of the law for us 
And then in our conversion gives us the Holy Spirit and in doing so fulfills the law in us. That doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that we're free now from being obedient. Far from it. We'll talk about that here in just a few minutes. But the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, let me ask you, are you walking according to the Spirit? Or are you walking according to the flesh? It's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever in many cases. I mean, think about this. To fulfill the law, for Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament law, which is what he said here that he came to do, I came to complete it or to fill it up, so to speak. Jesus had to meet the statutes of the law, every single one of them. The standards of the law, every single one of them. The structures of the law, even even the, the, the minutia of the law. The specifications of the law, the strictness of the law he had to abide by. The scrutiny of the law, all the sacrifices that the law demanded. When Jesus uttered the words in John 19.30, it is finished, what Jesus was effectively saying there is mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. I have fulfilled all that has been required of me. And that has massive, massive implications on you, believers. Mission accomplished. You see, that's a statement that we could have never uttered on our own. Now, today, if we are in Christ, mission has been accomplished, but it was accomplished for us by another. It was accomplished on our behalf through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled it by his sinlessness. Jesus fulfilled it by his substitution for us, being our substitutionary atonement. Jesus fulfilled the law by his suffering for us. And Jesus filled the law by his satisfaction. You see, over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the priests would have to enter into the holies of holies year after year and make sacrifice for the temporary appeasement of God's wrath towards sin. But Jesus, Jesus came once and for all, and he was the satisfaction that no Old Testament priest could have ever been for us. That's why when we read in Hebrews that after after making purifications for our sin, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father who is in heaven. Just another way of saying, mission accomplished. You see, those Old Testament priests, they never sat down because their work was never complete. But Jesus, Jesus came to be our substitutionary sacrifice and he completed once and for all what the Old Testament ceremonial law could not. And he sat down. All the Old Testament points to Jesus. Every single bit of it. Jesus is the truer and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, though slain innocently, has blood now that cries out, not for condemnation, but rather for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and the familiar and to go out into the void and to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but who was truly sacrificed for 
us. I mean, when God said to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two twelve, Now I know, Abraham, that you love or fear me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. You see, now we can look at God taking his son up to the mountain, the Lord Jesus Christ, and sacrificing him and say, now we know, God, that you love us because you did not withhold your son from us, your only son, whom you loved. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve so that we, like Jacob, would only receive the wounds of grace to waken us up and discipline us instead of the wounds of God's wrath. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands on the gap between his people and mediates a new covenant. Remember, Moses mediated the old covenant. Jesus, the true and better Moses, mediates the perfect covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who, when struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives water to us. In the desert. Jesus is the true and better Boaz who redeems his people as a bride for himself. I mean, over and over and over again. Jesus is the true and better Job, the true and better David, the true and better Esther, the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm that we might be brought in. Jesus is the the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. He's the real Passover lamb, the innocent, perfect, the slain for us so that the angel of death would pass over. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true light, and the bread, the true bread that satisfies forever. All the Old Testament points to Jesus, and he fulfilled it all. He fulfilled it all. He didn't come to wipe it away, to erase it, to alter it, to diminish its importance. He came that he might be its ultimate fulfillment for us. Friends, Jesus believed that the scriptures not only pointed to him, but that they found their ultimate fulfillment in him. And so I would ask you the question, if Jesus believed that, do you? Do you believe that the scriptures, in their totality, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, not only point to Jesus, but they find their ultimate fulfillment in him? The Old Testament points toward Jesus as Savior, and if you miss that, you've missed the entire point of the scriptures. If you miss the fact that the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, it's a big, massive arrow pointing down the road 2,000 years to a Christ who would hang on a cross for us, then you've missed the point of the Scriptures. And what Jesus is saying in verse 17 here is, I'm the one. I'm the one that the Old Testament Scriptures speak about. I'm the one that the Old Testament law points to. I'm the truer and better of it all. Friends, let me never encourage you, and then we'll move on to point number two. Let me encourage you to never set aside the Old Testament scriptures as being antiquated or less than useful portion of your scriptures. The Old Testament, it's the germ of Christianity. You might think of it this way. The Old Testament is the gospel in bud form, but the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. Learn to cherish the Old Testament. Dive into and devour those pages that are for many of us oftentimes less turned. For in doing so, you'll see that they anticipate and point to the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation. Jesus says, don't think I've come to do away with it. I've come to be the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Point number two on your 
outline is this. Jesus assures us with great certainty that every single detail of the law will be accomplished. Look at verse 18. Jesus says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus has stated his purpose already. I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill. That's his purpose. And now Jesus is going to go on to tell us what the cause of that is. The cause of Jesus' purpose in coming is that the law is permanent until it has been completely fulfilled. Jesus, by introducing his statement with the phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. Remember what I normally say when we read those words? What should you do? What should your ears do when you hear the words, truly, truly? We should all perk up, right? Because what's about to follow is of massive importance. As a matter of fact, here's just something interesting for you. The word truly there, it's the Greek word amen. We oftentimes put it at the end of a prayer. Jesus started verse 18 with the Greek word amen. Truly means to agree with. Okay? Jesus says, I'm in agreement here. Truly, truly, I say to you, amen. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest part of the law will pass away until it's all accomplished. Verse 18, Jesus assures us that every detail of the Old Testament will be accomplished. Look at what Jesus says. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. Uh, let, let, me, let me show you a little graphic here. I think we've got it. Anyone want to take a stab? It's Genesis 1-1 here. Uh, Bereshit, bara, Elohim, et, wahashmayim, wa'et, ha'eretz. In the beginning created God, the heavens and the earth. Now, look at this word right here, Bereshit, in the beginning, okay? When Jesus says not the smallest letter in your Bible, the smallest letter in Hebrew would have been this yod right here. It's this little backwards comma looking guy, okay? Now, even smaller than that, your Bible might refer to as a jot or a tittle. And I don't know if you can see it from where you're sitting, but this is kind of the Hebrew R right here. And I don't know if you can see, but on the horn of this R is a little hook up. Just a tiny little hook. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says a jot or a tittle. You think that's just Genesis 1-1 there. And so Jesus says not the smallest letter, not only the smallest letter, but the smallest stroke of a pen. Ah, good, good question. See the R right there? It's hard to see because it's small, but right, right on the end of it there, there's a little tiny hook, just kind of a wisp up. I mean, if, if you didn't know it, you might think it's, for some of our handwriting, you might think it's kind of a, just a, a thing we do or even a mistake. But it's not a mistake because in the Hebrew language, that little serif there makes the difference between one letter or the next. It's of massive importance. So Jesus is telling us here that not the smallest part of the law will pass away until it's all accomplished. Every detail of the law will be fulfilled. And so what does Jesus teach us here? What does, he, what does he teach us about his own view of the scriptures? Well, I think Jesus teaches us here that the scriptures are infallible, they're inerrant, they're authoritative in every way, and they're sufficient in every way. Jesus believed that, and so should we. 
Jesus held the scriptures in very high regard, and so should we. I don't mean to condemn by this next statement, but there are some of us, and I've been the some of us, okay? There are some of us that will go home this afternoon, and you'll put your Bible on a table, you'll put it on a dresser, you'll put it on a nightstand, and you'll pick it back up 168 hours from now to come back next Sunday. Friends, let me remind you that Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, held the scriptures in very, very high regard. And so should we. So should we. And let me encourage you to dive into those Old Testament scriptures, those pages that are kind of crackly because they've been turned probably less. Dive into those Old Testament scriptures and see how they're all pointing. They're all pointing to Jesus. And they see their fulfillment in him. I think Jesus is teaching us here in verse 18. I think he's teaching us the inspiration and the immutability, the unchanging nature of the scripture. See, the Old Testament scripture, and really none of the scripture, and I shouldn't even have quantified that and said really, like really without exception, none of the scriptures are changing. See, the Old Testament, which I refer to the Old Testament because that's what Jesus is referring to here. The New Testament was not written or completed at this point, but the Old Testament scriptures, they don't just contain truth. They are truth. A world of heresy is spawned from the fact that some people think that their Bibles just contain truth. See, this isn't just a splitting hairs comment. We should say that, no, the Scriptures don't just contain truth. The Scriptures are truth. Absolute truth from beginning to end. Jesus believed it, and so should we. Jesus reminds us in John chapter 10, verse 35, he says, Scripture cannot be broken. Over and over again, the New Testament, uh, Jesus quotes the Old Testament by saying, it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the Greek has the idea, when Jesus says, it is written, the, the Greek carries the idea, it's written and it'll always be written. It's inflexible, it's unchanging. The Scriptures are more enduring, Jesus says, than the created universe. Catch that? The scriptures are more enduring than the created universe. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands. Go ahead. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. Lots more could be said about point number two. That's for your study. Point number three. Jesus warns those who would relax his commandments. And after the printing of this, I realized that I should have put another blank there. And I should have put this. Jesus encourages those who uphold the commandments. Jesus warns those who would relax his commandments, but yet here in verse 19, he encourages those who would uphold the scriptures. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verses 18 and 19, the two verses that are left before us here, 
what Jesus does is he gives us the consequence of his coming to fulfill the law and the law being permanent until the end. Jesus gives us the the, the consequence of those two truths. And the consequence is that the citizens of his kingdom, that's you and me if we know Christ savingly, by the way, citizens of his kingdom must abide by or be obedient to the revealed word of God. You see, there's a strong warning here in verse 19 for anyone who thinks that it's permissible to dilute God's word in any way, shape, or form. But there's also an encouragement here for those who uphold and obey and teach others to obey God's word. Let me speak to that tendency that there is in all of us to dilute God's word. We have a problem, friends, with authority. We have a real problem with authority. Unless those who are a bit more advanced in age should think to themselves, it's just those youngsters today that have a problem with authority. No, the seed of that is in the heart of every single one of us without exception. We all have a problem with authority. And so there is in each of us a tendency, because we don't like authority, to loosen or to relax God's word at times. God's word is ultimate authority. You see, the sin, the sin is seen in each of our hearts oftentimes by our resistance to authority, our resistance to obey. We don't like others making rules for us. We don't like others holding us accountable for what we do or say. But the inevitable consequence of this is the breakdown of homes. We see that, right? It's the breakdown of schools. We see that. It's the breakdown of churches. It's the breakdown of government. It's the breakdown of society in general is when people... Because they don't like authority, and they don't want someone to tell them what to do, and they don't want someone to correct their actions, begin to rebel. No one wants to be accountable to anyone else. And when that happens, what the result is is anarchy. Anarchy. It's lawlessness, which, by the way, is what the New Testament calls sin, right? Sin is lawlessness. Friends, even the church hasn't escaped these attitudes. I fear that many congregations hesitate uh, or even refuse to deal with sin amongst its members. Many churches would rather just turn a blind eye and would rather just keep on keeping on instead of dealing with sin. But we can't do that. Why can't we do that? Well, friends, let me tell you why we can't do that. Because God demands holiness. That's why we can't do that. We ought to be growing in our love for holiness. We ought to be growing in our love for righteousness. When we turn a blind eye to sin, what it reveals in us is that we become laxed in our view of holiness and lax in our view of righteousness. We would rather keep peace instead of keep holiness. It's in all of us, friends, and it's crept its way into the church subtly, Again, many congregations hesitate or even refuse to discipline their members who are in sin. This comes for many reasons, for fear of offending or fear of losing financial support or fear of being thought as old-fashioned or legalistic or even fear of stepping on someone else's presumed rights. It's pervasive. But if we love holiness, we must view sin differently. We must view sin differently. We must view it as God views it. 
The prophet Habakkuk tells us that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. Thank God that his son was the perfect substitute of the law's demands for justice for us. Because the law demands death. God wasn't kidding in the garden when he said, as surely as you eat of it, you will die. We threaten our children sometimes. I've said this, and I I am the parent that I'm about to share here. We threaten our kiddos and say, if you do that one more time, then I'll do it one more time. And I'm serious, I'll told you three times already, if you do it again. And so what we teach our kiddos, unfortunately, by way of model, is that we are lax or that we are flexible in the law's demands. And so we should not see it as a, as a strange thing when we see a whole generation of young people growing up saying, this is what mom and dad taught me. God must be the same way. Anarchy. Lawlessness. No desire for holiness. In the name of grace, in the name of love, in the name of forgiveness, sin is oftentimes dismissed or excused. Jesus says, woe to the one who would relax my commandments. Now, make a few comments here. It's important to note that Jesus isn't referring to a loss of salvation in verse 19. When he says... Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, which, by the way, Jesus does make clear that there are some commandments that are weightier and some that are, that are less weighty, but they're no less commandments, and we should view them, as far as our obedience is concerned, no lighter. Jesus does make a distinction here between the least of a commandment and a, and a great commandment, but Jesus isn't teaching here that we can lose our salvation when he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Jesus is not teaching there that we can lose what has been credited to our account. That should be clear here through the fact that those who relax God's commandments will be called least, but they'll still be in the kingdom. Be assured, though, that blessing and reward and fruitfulness and joy and usefulness, those things will all be sacrificed to the extent that we are disobedient. Blessing follows obedience. Write that down. Blessing follows obedience. We see that theme all throughout Scripture. And discipline follows disobedience. John tells us, he says, Watch yourselves, that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Watch yourselves, though. Watch yourselves. Make sure that you're being obedient to God's word. Not because you're gaining God's favor to do so, but because you have God's favor to do so. Let me say this as well. Jesus' warning here, it's not just simply an application to an official teacher or a formal teacher. Every person teaches. By way of our example, even, we continually help those around us or hinder them from being obedient to God's word. We teach about what we say. When we speak lovingly and respectfully of God's word, we teach others to respect it. Parents, grandparents. When we speak disparagingly or slightingly of God's word, we teach others to disregard it and to disrespect it. When we ignore the demands of scriptures, we give a loud testimony that it's unimportant to us. Parents, grandparents. 
Remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to obey some things that I've commanded you, right? No. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So how should the Christian then relate to the law? Just a few minutes to deal with this here. How should the Christian, that's you and me, relate to the Old Testament law? We know that Jesus came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And then Jesus spoke to the permanency of God's law. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word remains forever. That's how Jesus relates to the law. He's the perfect fulfillment of it all. Really, the, all the Old Testament scriptures, because they're all pointing to him. So how should we, the Christian, relate to the law then? How are we to understand our relationship to the law? Well, the law was oftentimes, you won't see this, this distinction or this classification written in your Bible, but there's kind of three Three groups, so to speak, that the law was broken down into. There was ceremonial law that governed how Israel was to worship. It governed the sacrifices, all the washings. There was the judicial or the civil law that governed how Israel as a nation was to to live. And then there was the moral law. Specifically, the Ten Commandments here. And so how are we as Christians, that's the question, to relate to the law? I would say this. I would say with regard to the ceremonial law, Jesus has fulfilled it completely. All the Old Testament ceremonial laws, they were all fulfilled in Jesus. He's our high priest. He is the offering of offerings. He is the sacrifice who was presented once and for all. He has presented his blood in heaven for all those who believe. Hebrews 9.12. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ coming, his death and resurrection, and his ascension. He's the perfect fulfillment. It is no longer in effect. With regard to the judicial or the civil law that was given to the nation of Israel, I would say Jesus has fulfilled that completely. But when it comes to the moral law, we are to heed and obey all of God's righteous demands. The moral law of God is permanent and it's perpetual. Jesus summed up the moral law in Mark chapter 12, verse 20, or I'm sorry, verse 30 and 31. This is a familiar text to you. Mark 12, 30 and 31. It's the greatest commandment. Remember Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He replies, they're trying to trap Jesus in his words here. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. No commandment is greater than these. No commandment is greater than these. We should also note that all all of the prescriptions with the exception of the Sabbath in the Old Testament moral law are repeated in the New Testament epistles. It's just as binding today. Obedience to God's standards have not changed. That's what I want you to get. God's standards have not changed. And so what we see in the Ten Commandments is all repeated in the New Testament epistles. Paul wrote it to the church with the exception of the Sabbath. We can talk about the Sabbath later. 
Uh, just to whet your appetite, I would say that Jesus is our Sabbath. We find our Sabbath rest in him. There's nothing more holy about a Sunday than if we were to have a service on a Monday. Typically throughout redemptive history and church history, the church has met on the first day of the week, which we know is Sunday, and that's great, that's fine. But Paul, Paul said, don't let anybody look down on you because of your observance of, of this festival or new moons or of Sabbath or of days. There's nothing more holy about this day than another day. Just like there's nothing more holy about the 12 inches of cloth that you're sitting on now than this altar. Because your heart's an altar. The Old Testament law, because it's all repeated in New Testament epistles, is just as binding for us today. And so I would, I would make the distinction, are we under the law of Moses? I would say we're under the law of Christ How are believers in the church age to think about the Old Testament Mosaic law, particularly the Ten Commandments? I would say that we are under the law of Christ. Paul mentioned the law of Christ twice. Once in Galatians 6.2, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens, and in doing so, fulfill the law of Christ. Remember, that's the second of the greatest commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Point number four, Jesus calls every believer to the highest standard of righteousness. Jesus calls every believer to the highest standard of righteousness. Look at verse 20. Paul says this, or Paul, got Paul in my mind now. Jesus says this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not, never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on here in verse 20 to say that entrance into the kingdom of heaven requires a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You see, obeying the law is important, but the way in which the law obeyed is obeyed is absolutely crucial. You see, that the point that Jesus is going to get at here, uh, really in the next handful of weeks as we continue to study the Sermon on the Mount, is the difference between mere external worship, which is really self-worship, and heart worship. It's, it's like the story of, of the, the mommy and the daddy who, uh, at the kitchen table, tell their little three-year-old to sit down at the kitchen table. Sit down while you're eating. And as he sits down, he says, but I'm standing in my heart. Is he obedient or is he disobedient? He's disobedient. Right? What Jesus is getting at here is heart worship. What we saw in the Pharisees and the scribes was was great displays of external obedience to the law. Yet it was obedience oftentimes to an addition of the law or a subtraction of the law. There was rigorous obedience. Rigorous obedience to their own man-made law. But what Jesus is looking for is heart obedience to his revealed word. Are you obedient not only externally, where you can be seen and applauded by men, but are you obedient in your heart? Are you obedient as an expression of worship to God? See, these these scribes and Pharisees, what, what do we know about them? They were the ones who recorded and studied and interpreted Jewish law. They spent their days expounding and instructing others in the word of God, which is why Jesus says, be careful what you teach others, by the way. Not only by your mouth, but by your example. 
In many respects, they were considered the foremost authority when it came to matters of the law. As a matter of fact, when the common man, that's most of us, me included, would, would have looked at these scribes and Pharisees and said, well, well if, if the standard that God requires of righteousness exceeds their standard, how are we ever going to make it? How is anybody getting in? Because they're the most righteous people we know. How are we, the commoners, ever going to make it? And so Jesus says, that's what, what you're looking at is a bad model. What you're looking at is a bad model. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never make it. You'll never make it. You see, in the text before us this morning, Jesus directly confronts the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. More specifically, he's, he is taking head on that false doctrine of salvation by works. That's what the scribes and Pharisees thought. They thought, I'm meriting God's favor by simply being obedient to the prescription of the law. But Jesus turned and looked at them, and he quoted the Old Testament when he said this, by the way, and he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They thought that they could somehow obtain salvation through self-effort. Jesus comes and he draws the line in the sand here between man-made religion and God-initiated salvation. See, friends, hell is full of human righteousness. Hell is full of human righteousness. People who thought they could attain it on their own. People who thought they could measure up on their own. Ever since the fall of man in the garden, man has erroneously tried to carve out a path to heaven based on his own striving. The problem is, is that God will never be satisfied by the highest standard of human righteousness. That's why it's real important that we understand what Jesus meant in verse 17 when he said, I'm the fulfillment of the standard and I'm the fulfillment of the curse that you rightly should endure for violating the standard. And unless your righteousness, which comes by way of being imputed to you, unless it's given to you, Because there's an exchange of Jesus' merit, his perfect, sinless merit for your sin-tattered merit. Unless that exchange has taken place, you don't have a new heart. And if you don't have a new heart, then you can never be obedient in the way in which Jesus is saying. What Jesus is essentially saying is that your righteousness has to outclass the righteousness of the Pharisees. And that can't be the case unless we have a new heart. Friends, do you have a new heart Are you striving on your own? Is it possible that you're a Pharisee? Let me qualify that by saying there's a little Pharisee in all of us. There's a little self-righteous Pharisee in every single one of us. But are you a Pharisee in the sense that you're trying to earn what you can never earn? That you're striving for what you can never attain in your own power? Are you trusting Christ alone in his perfect substitutionary atonement? credited to your otherwise bankrupt account that the law might be fulfilled in you. Friends, I hope that's you. Let me close here with just a confession of a well-known hymn that we sing.
Augustus Toplady penned these words, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the mountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Two places you can hide yourself, friends. You can hide yourself in yourself or you can hide yourself in Christ. You hide yourself in yourself, you're an Adam. You hide yourself in Christ, you're forgiven.